Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. We're coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network International. And uh, thank you for joining us. I want to thank especially those of you who've uh, sent us emails and questions. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find out more about our program as well as listen to uh, the many archived versions of the Deep in Scripture at deepinscripture.com. And you can send us a, a question at questions at deepinscripture.com. Again, I mentioned this program is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International, and you can follow our work. You become a member of our work by joining us at the Facebook page or Twitter at CH Network. But again, thank you for joining us in our work. This particular series of Deep in Scripture is focused on what we're calling hard verses, and I'm inviting guests to join me to, to discuss a verse of Scripture that uh, was hard for them in the past and then how they've come to discover the beauty of it uh, as they discovered the beauty of the church and, and the great uh, rule of faith that has been handed down from the beginning to help us understand the context in which we are to understand the truth of our faith. And it is a wonderful privilege to invite to join me today a, a great friend, David Curry. Uh, first of all, David, hello, are you there? I am here. Thank you. Thank oh. you, Marcus. It's great to be here. I always enjoy talking to you, and we don't see each other as much as I'd like. Well, you know, I'm sure the audience can tell that you're not exactly in the same room. We're using modern technology to get you here. But it's it's amazing how it feels close to be with I can see you there and, and talk yeah. to you, and what a great blessing of the technology. I, I, are... like I feel like I'm there in Ohio, but I'm not. <laughs> Well, it's wonderful to join you, my friend. Um, and in case the audience uh, are not aware, David is a wonderful author. I'm not sure exactly the order, but the, the first book I think that you wrote, David, was Born Fundamentalist, Born Again Catholic. And uh, that was describing your journey of faith following Christ wherever he took you in a place you didn't expect. Right. I didn't expect it at all. And, and uh, actually, I... I, you're right, it was my first one. I wasn't planning on writing a book. It was actually a long, extended letter to my fundamentalist pastor father trying to explain to him why his son had absolutely gone stark raving mad yeah. and uh, you know, left the Protestantism and, and, and joined the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, I wrote it for him and then um, was told by my spiritual director, actually, hey, you need to get this published. So that, that's where the book came from. And, and, you know, you and I have great sympathy for uh, folk like your father who loved Jesus Christ, completely surrendered their lives to the Lord, uh, loved the Word, and desired to live out the Word, and their feeling about Catholics. You know, a, a great majority of non-Catholic Christians, uh, number one, don't believe Catholics are Christian, or the Catholic Church is a Christian church. They don't even include it as, as another option. Right. And they also, in fact, don't generally believe that belonging to a church is essential anyway. As long as you have Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what church you belong to. Well, that's such an assumption. So they couldn't imagine why. Well, why would you become Catholic? You know, why right. not just stay where you are? And uh, and then the other thing is the issue of Scripture, which is where we address on this program, is they assume that all we need is the Bible. And on the surface, that can sometimes uh, seem sufficient. It can seem to be a pillar and bulwark of truth. In fact, I'm assuming, David, that for most of your long, young life, as the son of a, a pastor, 
you assumed without question that the Bible was sufficient for your faith. Um, yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, uh, not just as a young man. I mean, all the way through, I went to seminary, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't come into the church until the rather middle-aged age of 40. So <laughs> you and I came in the same age. Yeah. So um, all through my 30s, I really didn't doubt it until my late 30s when I obviously was struggling with these issues. But uh, it was it was something that I never really even questioned. It was it was one of those things. That it's an assumption that is so deeply ingrained in us as Protestants that it, it never even entered my mind. Uh, to question whether the sun was going to come up tomorrow and whether Scripture was sufficient for our salvation. Yeah, and I, boy, I understand that feeling, David, because when I was in the same boat as you, seminary, pastorate, and all of that, when I saw, if I encountered a verse that I had a hard time interpreting or understanding or explaining, uh, I didn't question that there was anything wrong with the Bible. I assumed the problem was me. Um, or all those other people that had it wrong. And I was coming at it from a Calvinist Presbyterian perspective. And you were a Baptist. Our, our perspectives are probably pretty similar, though. And, yeah, and this would have disagreed a little bit. You know, we would have thought that you put way too much emphasis on, on baptism, you know, and, uh, and also way too much emphasis on, you know, what we call communion, right. uh, what we now call the Eucharist. Uh, and you... And your your perspective, which is evidenced in your other, your second and third book, your second book was Rapture, the end times era that leaves the Bible behind, and then your third book, what Jesus really said about the end of the world. I mean, those come out of your background, which was very much a, a great focus on the scriptures that dealt with prophecies of the end times. Right. That, that, that was that was our cup of tea, as they say. Um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about that. We were absolutely sure that we were in the final generation, that, that uh, Israel had been founded in 1948 and that there was one generation that, that was left after that happened, and they would see all the signs, and then we would see Revelation unfolding in front of our very, you know, the yeah. apocalypse unfolding, those events unfolding right before our eyes. And we weren't alone in that. I mean, uh, oh. Billy Graham believed this. You know, right. there, it was not it was not something that was uh, a little corner of the world that nobody knew about. It was it was uh, you know, Jerry Falwell, you know, Billy Graham, you know, many of the big names that non fundamentalists would recognize recognize right. uh, had the same belief system. And and my perspective on that, David, was as a Presbyterian pastor. I had become well aware of all these other opinions by going to Gordon Conwell, which was a non-denominational, interdenominational evangelical school with seminarians from over 40 different denominations. So I saw all these different opinions on the verses. I came out of seminary with a deep love for Christ and a deep reverence for Scripture, but a grave doubt in my own ability to figure out what was right. I assumed all these confusions because I didn't study enough or I was sinful or I didn't have faith. And when it came to prophecies, and I heard men like you and others that made such a big deal out of it, yet I heard all these different opinions. How do I lead my people? And, and that was what the bottom line for me was. I was responsible to my people from my pulpit what I taught was true. And when I saw all these other opinions, 
What do I deal with the difficult, hard verses of prophecy? And my one conclusion was that every single one of those statements could happen in our lifetime. But I could also guarantee to everyone that, that Jesus will return in our lifetime, whether in. in the crowds or when we die. And right, that was right. we are all we are all going to have the second coming of Christ personally at that on that on that deathbed. We will meet him, and uh, and and as a result, as, as a Catholic now, that's a very Catholic view that you had. Right. Uh, to me, it's not really important a whole lot what that final date is. First of all, we can't know it. Right. But second of all, um, you know, I'm getting to the age where I'm probably I'm going to meet Christ in way less than two decades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like Paul's statement. I'm sure whether I want to live or die, you know, I want to be with Jesus, you know, so it's... it's. Well, I say that every morning. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get out of it. I'm not sure if I want to live or die today. Yeah, oh, I understand, <laughs> my friend. I cup of coffee, I feel a little bit better. <laughs> uh, boy, I understand. And, you know, there's an example of, of what we, you and I have been talking about is how you deal with a hard verse. And we could have chose those prophecies, which you've written about, but... As I do with my guests, I asked you, okay, what verse you would like to use as a hard verse for our discussion today? And uh, and you you gave an example of verse. Tell us what verses you chose that was hard for you back then when okay, you were still you a card-carrying Baptist. You want me to read them as well? Please do. Okay. Uh, what I chose was the last few verses of the book of Zechariah. Uh, it's actually Zechariah. Chapter 14, verses 20 and 21, but I'm going to lead up with, with a half a verse before that. But if, if someone is following us, Marcus, and they're trying to find Zechariah, a pretty easy book to find if you have the RSV is First and Second Maccabees, because they're pretty big, you know, so you can sort of, you know, shuffle through it. But it's toward the end, and uh, then go forward to Malachi, and then forward from that to Zechariah if you're in the RSV. Uh, some other Bibles put Maccabees in different places, but... Um, uh, so it's the next to the last book of the Old Testament that we had as Protestants. Exactly. Just turn to Matthew now, and then back up a little bit, and there it is. Right. right. Yeah, that's the other way. Find the New Testament division, then go back up. You know, Malachi is a very short book. Mm-hmm. So, um, so let me just uh, let me just start with 19b, and we'll go to the end of the of the thing. Uh, all right. And there will be a punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, quote, holy to the Lord, unquote. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the flesh of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor or a Canaanite, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Now, probably the average person is wondering, how could that be a, 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 a difficult verse? It doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> yeah, because you know most people, and I don't, I, I can't, I don't know what anybody else thinks, uh, so I can't claim to know anybody else's think. But it seems like my experience is that most people with verses like that, they just read on and start reading Malachi, the next book. You know, they don't, they don't <laughs> so deal with it. What am I glad I'm done with Zechariah? <laughs> there we are, you know, and uh, 
it's like those parts of Leviticus, what your numbers, what do you do with all this stuff? And, and I'm sure it meant somebody to somebody three, 4,000 years ago, but I don't see how it fits today, so I'm going to move on to something else. I mean, that's how you do with verses like that. Did you well, have an explanation? Yeah, and sometimes, Marcus, to be honest with you, that's the best thing to do, is if you're sitting down for your, your personal time in Scripture, don't, don't get hung up on something that's difficult. Find something that God is saying to you. So I'm, I'm, I don't think that's wrong. But let me tell you what the problem was that I had with this verse. Okay. I was in seminary, and I vividly remember this, even though it was a long, long time ago that I was at Trinity Seminary. <laughs> <laughs> I, went, I went to Trinity Seminary, which is like Gordon Conwell. And then yep. I probably had 40 different denominations in the faculty. Oh, yeah. You know? Yep. Uh, I mean, it was just tremendous, the, the variety of things. But um, I remember this young man, and I was a young man at the time, coming up in the hallway to a professor. And this professor was uh, very uh, renowned in eschatology. He, he knew what he was talking about, and he agreed basically with the fundamentalist view of the rapture and the, the millennium is still in the future and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, and this student came up to this professor and said to him, why... Why will there have to be sacrifices in the millennium? There you go. Now, the, the verse states that in the kingdom of God, all the nations will be coming through God's people and celebrating the Feast of Booths, and that during that time, there will be sacrifices. So it's not a question of in the kingdom, will there be sacrifices? The question that the, the, this young man was asking was, why would there be sacrifices? Now, let me set that up a little bit for you. We, we believe that, the, that the, the cross, the crucifixion, the passion, was the only sacrifice, and that it was once for all. I mean, if you're a Catholic that's ever talked to a Protestant, you know that they talk about the once for all yep. sacrifice. And that all we had to do was believe in that sacrifice and accept the benefits of that sacrifice, and we would go to heaven. So this young man's question was, if that's true, that the sacrifice of Christ finished sacrifices forever, why would they be offering sacrifices in the future when the temple's rebuilt? Because remember, from our perspective, there is a temple that still has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. From this perspective that I was born in, uh, you know, they're they're trying to get a, a red bull uh, down in Texas so that they can send it over there to, <laughs> you know, to uh, to consecrate the the land, tear down the uh, the Muslim mosque that's there on the mount and rebuild the temple and when they rebuild the temple then they'll be able to start these sacrifices again and and the man of sin can be revealed and the rapture can occur and the seven trivial years of tribulation happen and we can go into the millennium so it's all based on this fact that the temple is going to be rebuilt and the the answer of this professor i it just blew me away he looked at this young man, and I was just standing there. I had been talking to him. I was just standing there, and I sort of backed up a little bit so they could finish the conversation. And the professor looked at him, and he said, 
I know of no good explanation for that verse. I was blown away, Marcus. I mean, this was a guy that was probably twice my age, maybe almost three times my age, and he'd studied scripture his whole life. And he was an expert in this, and he didn't have an explanation for this verse. And I thought, wow, wow, this is, you know. And ever since I'd been probably around 13 or 14, I started saving verses in the back of my mind Mm -hmm. that I could not explain. And this one went, like, pretty much up at the top of the list. (laughs) Um, And uh, Yeah, and it's probably probably like... You know, I've got a whole file cabinet full of all my old sermon notes from t- 10 years of preaching and you know, file folders for each book of the Bible and each chapter of the Bible, you know, right. and, and I don't think there's one verse, there's one sermon in there on John chapter 6, at least right. at least the verses in the 50s uh, that deal with the Eucharist. Um, you know, I didn't know, I didn't have an answer for those. And there were there were other verses like that, like like the verse, and I think it's in, First Timothy, where it said God desires all people to be saved, especially those who have faith. And I'm thinking, what do you mean, especially those who have faith? It's only those that have faith. You know, I'm wanting to figure out how do I understand that verse and explain that to my people. And part of the problem is that we had, and unbeknownst to us, and this, I'd like you to comment on this, that the reason the verse was hard was because you were approaching the verse from within the context of a theology that had been built on, you know, basically the private interpretation or the group private interpretation of a group of people that had certain convictions that they brought with them to the Bible. And then you you explain verses from it, but then you encounter verses that don't fit that context. It's like, you know, a hyper-Calvinist that believes in the sovereignty of God over everything and that man has no free will at all. We lost it in this fall completely. We're totally depraved. I was a tulip Calvinist. Then, how, then there were, were, all, what, were all five points then? I was about four and a half. Okay, four and a half. I, I was never comfortable with, with the idea that Christ didn't die for everybody. Okay. You know, that was, the, you know, how do you describe that? Because the Calvinist believes he only dies for the elect, the chosen. Well, what about, wait a second, how do you explain God's mercy? You know, so you, you get yourself in a corner with certain verses. So certain verses don't fit, so you push them aside. So, you know, there you are, you know, and, and, and to a certain extent, that's why this verse was hard for you, because you had made a commitment about the issue of sacrifice. Exactly. And and those those assumptions Marcus, that we come to Scripture with are the hardest things for the Holy Spirit to uproot out of our lives. Hmm. And sometimes it takes years, and as you and I both know, it took me years and years of the Holy Spirit working on me to where all of a sudden I could start to look at my varied assumptions. For example, Sola Scripture, that that, that the Scripture alone is all I need to live a good Christian life and get to heaven, that I don't need anybody else. I don't need uh, the help of other people. I don't need any. I definitely felt that I didn't need anything physical. We didn't need baptism. We didn't need, uh, because faith was a totally spiritual thing. It was a totally, a a mental thing almost, really. Almost a really mental thing. I mean, it's almost a Gnostic thing. 
in sense well, I, that, I, that our faith I, is spiritual. I, I, it has I, I, nothing to do with our bodies. Yeah, I remember when I came into the church, uh, uh, when I met Tom Howard, who uh, yeah. his book meant a lot to me and my wife. And I met him at a conference, and I said, Tom, um, he said, where were you, you know, where did you come up? And I said, I was basically a, a fundamentalist Gnostic. And he smiled, and he knew exactly what I was saying, <laughs> because we, we were Gnostic in some ways, not some of the weird things that Gnostics believe, but in that whole separation of the body from anything spiritual. Yep, yep. And I'd add to that list of things you said from the time I could remember as a child, growing up Lutheran, and then later a born-again Christian as a Congregationalist, charismatic Congregationalist, and then in seminary becoming Calvinist and thinking and eventually Presbyterian pastor. During all that time, I became absolutely convinced, it never crossed my mind to doubt otherwise, in the, in my gut, that salvation is about faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and that it doesn't matter what church you belong to. And that, you know, the idea that when I die and go to heaven, that's going to make a difference whether I was a Baptist or Lutheran or Catholic, Episcopalian. It's, it, it, to me, that seemed absolutely irrelevant. Because yeah, I, 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 I agree, yeah. And, I come to that same point where the invisible body of Christ, that's what was important, the invisible body of Christ. And some of them were Presbyterians, and some of them were Methodists, and some of them were fundamentalists. But we all knew people in our church that we were pretty sure were going to be there and pretty sure that some of the people weren't going to be there. We were pretty sure about right. them, too. <laughs> yeah, and when you, well, take, yeah. when you take the church out of the equation, church is unnecessary. Church was a man-made thing as opposed to recognizing that there is no break in the Bible. There's a continuity with the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. There's a continuity in everything. There's no verse at all where Jesus says there's a break. That was, that, that was assumed later. And that's why there's this continuity. But the issue is when you get rid of the idea of a church that Jesus talks about in Matthew 16, or that, that Paul talks about in Ephesians and, and 1 Corinthians and, and all the other... Then you realize then the issue of priesthood, the issue of sacraments, the issue of baptism, and the issue of sacrifice have are lost because if there's no church, then there's none of those things. And as essentially Luther is admitting it, though this was not intent, but is admitting it is once you get rid of that, all that's left is faith alone. Right. And, and the physicality when that's removed um, we, we saw the physicality in the Old Testament, and we said that was the old way of doing it. And as these verses, when we looked at these verses, we said, well, that physicality will come back with those animal sacrifices in the Great Tribulation and the Millennium. But we, we're in this parenthetical time here of the church, and it's a purely spiritual thing. Now, uh, now let me give you—I'm going to ask you in just 30 seconds— to help us understand now how to understand this verse. But I'm going to give you how I might have answered this if I had been pushed to the corner. Okay. Because this is how, back when I was a Presbyterian, I might have answered this. I would have said, possibly, that, well, we recognize that there are a number of things in Deuteronomy, in the law, in Leviticus, that were proclaimed um, to be acts within the church forever, but we realize they're not. They were changed. We no longer worship on Saturday, worship on Sunday. We are no longer circumcised. Uh, the church in, in the Jerusalem Council decided that wasn't important. The Spirit led these guys. I didn't talk about the church. The Spirit led these leaders. 
And so here's an example of a prophet before the cross, before grace, before the awakening that grace gives to the fullness, did not know the full picture. So we can look back and say, well, he did not realize exactly the future. But in general, his prophecy holds together. But the issue of sacrifice did not become clear until later after Jesus, after the cross, after the coming of the Spirit. And you see, David, that would have been my answer, my knee-jerk answer. I wouldn't have thought it any deeper and just moved on. Right, yeah. And 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 that's pretty much what you have to do. You, know, you pretty much have to move on. Now, so the, let me, I would say the problem with that explanation is you can then use that explanation to discount everything in the Bible. And and we have you know liberal friends that do that for all the New Testament books too. They they say in the New Testament they say well you got to look at the culture, you've got to look at the you know what they were coming from and what they believed internally. And of course you know Jesus didn't really mean that that was his body of blood. He was just trying you know. Yeah, so that, you, you're right. That, and you, that, we all know those first century people were no no way as, as intelligent as we are today. Sophisticated <laughs> and technological. They didn't even know what an iPad was. Oh, I mean, could you imagine? Yeah, a bunch of dummies, you know. Well, hopefully, you know, we're facetious out there, listeners, because uh, uh, when you read the early church fathers, you realize in their writings, as well as New Testament, they were far from dummies. Uh, and it puts yeah. us to shame. So, David, talk about this first. How do we dig ourselves okay. out of this hole? Okay, so um, let's, let's talk about Zechariah in general first. What we did with Zechariah is we took all of it and applied it only to Israel. In other words, we felt like, okay, in the first part of Zechariah, he's talking about 500 years before Christ came. And in the last part of Zechariah, he's talking about the second coming, the kingdom. And get those two extremes, okay? okay? Um, as a Catholic, though, when we look at this, we see the first part. It is talking about rebuilding the temple that was built, the second temple in 500 A.D., about 500 A.D. But then there's this really interesting um, story about, and you're going to recognize this story. Even if, you know, any, any Christian is going to recognize this story, even if they don't know it's Zechariah. He becomes a shepherd of sheep, and he rails against the owners of those sheep. And they take a disliking to him, and they pay him off with 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> and God tells him to throw those 30 pieces of silver onto the floor of the temple. Um, you know, the, 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 the similarity is just too, yeah, yeah. you know, too good to miss, okay? So in the middle part of Zechariah, he's changing his focus from 500 years before Christ and he's now starting to enact things that are going to happen when Christ comes. Hmm. So that by the time we get to the end of Zechariah, we're really talking about a different age. Um, we're talking about now where the people of God are the church, the new Israel, as Paul would call them. And we don't have enough time here to go through all of this. I do cover some of this in my second book, um, The Wrath of the End Times Era. But, okay, excellent. Um, but I remember when I was coming into the church, I would, went back to all my problem verses, and I tried to see if I could understand them from a Catholic viewpoint. And I remember when I realized why there would be sacrifices in the kingdom of God, I got so excited, I got up out of my office, I ran into the other room, and in the living room, the only person that was there was my 13-year-old son, my oldest, Jonathan, and I said, John, 
this is really exciting. And I gave him a high five. <laughs> and then I went back into my office. And I realized he, he had no idea what I was excited about. But let, let, so let me, let me just go through these verses from a Catholic perspective. You know, first of all, it talks about the fact that the nations are going to come and keep the Feast of Booths. Now, what we miss is that the Feast of Booths is the only Old Testament festival, the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Festival of, of the Booths, that Sunday was the important day. It was the only festival uh-huh. within the Sabbath. Saturday was not the important day. Sunday was. It started on a Sunday, and it ended eight days later on another Sunday. Those were the two important days. The first day of the feast and the last day of the feast, those are the most holy. They were Sundays. So first of all, he's saying that the nations are going to come on Sundays to worship him. And when I realized that, I'm going, wait a minute, this is New Testament stuff. (laughs) It's in the Old Testament. Okay, so then go down to the sacrifices. I realized that the sacrifice that it was talking about here was in the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God was here when Christ first came. The mistake that we were making as Protestants is I was thinking the kingdom of God had not come yet. And Marcus, with good, with good reason. I looked around the church that I knew, and it was no kingdom. Mm-hmm. There was nobody in charge of it. Every, everybody was doing what they wanted to do. <laughs> and not only that, it wasn't worldwide because, I mean, there was our little group of churches, but then, Marcus, there was your little group of churches, and yeah. then there was another little group of churches. There was nothing worldwide. There was... You couldn't say the Presbyterians are worldwide. You can't say that the, the Methodists are worldwide. You certainly can't say that American fundamentalism is worldwide. And so there was no kingdom. So we knew that this had to be in the future because the kingdom was here. But when I realized that the kingdom had been founded by Christ and was here, and it had a vicar that was alive and on the earth, our Holy Father, and that that was the kingdom that Zechariah was talking about, I realized, well, then what is the sacrifice? And that's what got me so excited about, because I realized the sacrifice that Zechariah is talking about is the sacrifice of the Mass. Yeah. It's the Holy Eucharist. It's, you know, it's connected to the one final sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It is the same sacrifice, reenacted for our benefit every day. And that sacrifice is what is what Zechariah ends his book with, is that there will be a sacrifice um, that all the nations will come to, um, and they'll come on a on a Sunday. <laughs> so, I, I, all of a sudden, the, the verse made sense to me when I realized that Christianity is not a, a totally spiritual thing. And it is, it is spiritual, but we we're not angels. We need our physical bodies to to get there. And what I and like about so, what I like about that, David, is, again, by God's mercy uh, and grace, I, I am grateful that he's opened my heart and mind over these years, as well as my wife, Marilyn, to, to discover the beauty of the church and and then to have the chance to look at the early church fathers, look at the history, and look at the long tradition. And that explanation fits the long tradition from Zechariah through our Lord, the apostles, the early church fathers, all through the history, history of the church to today. There's a continuity, a thread of meaning in the sacrifice 
of the Eucharist that you can see and experience, whereas if you try and fit it into other theologies like you came from, it's all broken up. Right. It, it the loses. theology I came from was 200 years old. You know, when I saw this in these verses, I wasn't the first person seeing it by any means. If you go back and read the early church fathers, they talk about the sacrifice. They talk about the Eucharist. They talk, and, and you know, it, you look up a, a good Catholic commentary, they'll tell you exactly what I said to hear about these verses, yeah. that the sacrifice is the sacrifice of the Mass, and that Zechari- Zechariah is for foretelling. Um, so that it, I can't tell you, Marcus, what a relief it is to not have to find new things in the Bible. Well, again, it's not, it's not that now we can be dummies and we don't need to understand it. it what it does, it puts, it puts boundaries around the great freedom, therefore, that we can have. I mean, I've, exactly. In fact, I remember it may have been C.S. Lewis, I forget who it was, it's, that asked the question, when is a train most free when it's on the tracks or off? And it's most free on the tracks, just as a fish is most free in the water as opposed to out of the water. But in the boundaries of the track, that train can go anywhere. And that's the rule of faith that the church gives us because the church is the one that gave us the scriptures. The church is the one that defined the canon, that determined that Zechariah is in this collection of books. It wasn't just not just a random uh, group of well-meaning folk that got together to decide, well, let's decide what's going to be in the Bible. Uh, David, uh, thanks for this. Uh, I do, though, before we close, I wanted to tell the audience that you have a brand new book called Loving Baby Louie, Hope in the Midst of Grief. Just briefly tell us about this new book that you've put well, out. It's, it's sort of a, uh, a new thing for me in that it's a children's book. It's a picture book. It's got a lot of eye candy in it. It's very, very child-oriented. And I wrote it out of my own pain, to be honest with you, Marcus. I, we lost our 10th grandchild after 73 minutes. And oh. we knew ahead of time that he was going to die. So my, my daughter had worked very hard to try to have him delivered alive. She had a priest there. He was baptized. He was confirmed. Uh, and he died 73 minutes later. And uh, what I try to do is give kids, little kids, hope and truth about what life is really all about. And the fact that the communion of saints means that every time we go to Mass, we're singing the Sanctus with baby Louie. He's in heaven singing the, the Sanctus, and we're down here. And that it's okay to talk to baby Louie. And it's okay to pray to baby Louie because as a as a, a child that was baptized, confirmed, and never rebelled against those confirmation graces, we know he is a saint yeah. in heaven. Yeah. And yeah. so we can pray to him and ask him to tell Jesus things for us. So I, there was nothing, my daughter told me there was nothing uh, from a Catholic perspective to help children deal with grief. And I wrote it from the perspective of, of a child that's born that dies. But I've had people tell me that it's really helpful to talk about miscarriages with siblings as well, so that when mom and dad have a, a, a miscarriage and they have a three- or a four- or five-year-old child, it's a, it's a good resource for that as well. You know, when, when, <laughs> when uh, I was hired to serve at my first Presbyterian church as an assistant, and it was a second Presbyterian church, 
called second press. And right. one, one block away was first press. And I remember sitting down and says, you know, hey, we're, we're one block away. Why, why is there first and second pres in this small town? And they say, well, back in around Civil War time, the people in the one church were uh, at each other on the issue of slavery and whether Ohio would go in, was going to take part in the Civil War, and that was part of the issue. But was the, the spark that divided the church was there was a, an infant that died in that church about the same age that you talked about, Louis, who died before baptism. And the people then became divided over whether that unbaptized baby was going to go to heaven or hell. And they were divided over it. And at the funeral, the minister took one side of the issue in his sermon. And at that moment, the church was divided into first and second pres. And they're divided to this day over the very issue that you're talking about and helping people understand. And it's a wonderful thing. And I, David, I thank you for writing that book. Again, the audience, it's Loving Baby Louie, Hope in the Midst of Grief. And uh, I hope you can uh, go out there and get the book and share it with your, your children because they're the ones that understand. I remember when you hear the story of someone dying young and the most common view in society is that poor person, they were robbed of life. They were robbed of life. And they don't understand that no one dies apart from the mysterious will and wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that not a one of us has a right to any more days than God gives us. You know, whether it's 60 years or 80, that's all you are, David. I don't know. Um, yeah. the, <laughs> I don't look bad for somebody that's 85. Yeah, yeah. you and I are the same age. Uh, and, uh, you know, or, or five years old. We need to help our children understand that every day is a gift and to live it as if it's our last. Because we could stand before Lord tonight. We're going to be in eternity for so much more than we are here anyways. That's right. David, thank you for joining us on this program. It's always a pleasure to be with you. It just doesn't happen enough. Marcus, I I, I appreciate you being here. And thank you for your writing. And again, the audience, uh, I encourage you to, to check out David's books. I'm sure they're all available at any number of bookstores online. Again, you can connect with us at deepinscripture.com or you can go to the Coming Home Network website, chnetwork.org. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to us at questions at deepinscripture.com. Join us at Facebook. Join us on Twitter at chnetwork. God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week. Mm-hmm.